This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We've been discussing how Jesus is superior to everyone and everything that has been an intermediary between us and God. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels, to Moses, and to the Levitical priesthood. Last week, we talked about the Mosaic covenant that was established. It established the law and established the priesthood. And Jesus is even superior to that. He brings a a greater, a better covenant. And this week, we're going to talk about why is that important? Why is it so important that we're stop and talk about Jesus' covenant being greater than the former covenant, the one that was made under Moses? Tonight, we're going to kind of cut our section in half. We're going to have a section about the old covenant with two points. The first point is that it is a picture, and the second point is that it is a picture that cannot save because pictures don't save. And then we'll look at the new covenant, and the new covenant... It has three points, and the first point is that we can't uphold the new covenant. The second point is that God upholds it for us. And the third is that the new covenant can save. While you're turning to Hebrews chapter 9, I want to recount for you some college days. On my wall, I had... A growing collection of pictures of my now wife, Jackie, who was at the time my girlfriend. And because we were a long distance and we didn't have FaceTime yet, we would send each other pictures in the mail. And so I'd pin them up, and soon the pictures grew into a collage. And then she'd send me another letter, and I'd pin the letter up. And there we have a CD of our favorite songs, so I'd pin that to the wall. And soon there was a Jackie shrine above my bed. I feel bad for my roommate who had to stare at her as he was going to sleep at night. And finally, she would come into town. She would fly into Tulsa, and I'd pick her up, and she was there. She was real. She was someone I could hold hands with. She was someone I could introduce to my friends. And the the Jackie Shrine now didn't matter anymore. I didn't need pictures of her. I had her there for, for five days or a week or however long it was. She was there in the flesh. And she got to be mine. It was really cool. The old covenant under Moses, the one that God established with the Israelites at Sinai, was beautiful. It showed the existence of God, his attributes, the beauty of what was real, the beauty of who was coming. But in and of itself, it was just pictures. But it pointed not to a what, but to a who. It pointed to someone coming, someone that would fulfill all the pictures, someone that all the pictures looked like that was far better than the pictures. And with Jesus coming, all, that, all those pictures, they became null and void. There's no need for them anymore. Jesus is here. Our author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. 
And the government is starting to, to knuckle down. The government is like okay with Judaism, not okay with Christianity. And they also have families that have remained in the Jewish faith that denied Christ. And so they're getting pressure to go back to their old ways, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the temple, back to the old covenant. And ultimately, the pressure is to go back to the pictures. And our author here is saying, look, the Jews have the pictures, but we have the person. There's nothing to go back to. We have the new covenant. So first of all, what is a covenant? A covenant was a treaty or a commitment between usually a superior and a vassal, a king and an inferior. And covenant, the word literally means to cut. Because often at the establishment of a covenant, they would take a sacrificial animal and cut it in half. And the symbolism meant, may I be like this animal should I break my side of the covenant. And they would take half of the animal and they'd burn it to whatever their deity was. And then they would take the other half of the animal and they would make a covenant meal and eat together as a sign of this covenant. And there's two different kinds of covenants in the Bible. The first covenant is bilateral, bi meaning two. It's conditional. We're going to lay out the stipulations of the covenant. You keep your end of the covenant, and I will keep my end of the covenant. Elijah, jump up here with real quick. Let's imagine this four by four as a covenant. A bilateral is Elijah's holding up his end, and I'm holding up my end. Now, as long as both of us are holding it up, the covenant stays intact. But if I drop my end of the covenant, the covenant is now broken. He is no longer responsible to hold on to his end. Thank you, Elijah. Come stand in the middle. Now, a unilateral covenant, one, is unconditional. A unilateral covenant is, is written by the king, and he says, this is what's going to happen, and I am going to, pick it up for me, I am going to uphold the covenant despite your reaction to it. You're no longer responsible to hold this up because under my power and authority, I'm holding it up. And we see both of these covenants in the Bible. Thank you, Elijah. Well done. This covenant under Moses at Mount Sinai was a bilateral covenant. It was conditional. God was saying, I'm going to hold up my end and you're going to hold up your end. And what were the promises that both made? God said, I promise... I'm going to make you my people. Of all the nations of the world, you're my special people, and I'm going to dwell with you. And with my presence comes so many blessings. I'm going to save you. I'm going to erase your sin. Your end of the covenant is that you have to live holy so that I can be with you. And to live holy, you're going to have to live up to a long list of purity laws, stipulations, and if you hold up your end of the covenant, I'll hold up my end of the covenant. If you'd like to, turn your Bible to Exodus 24. We'll read the initiation of this covenant. Actually, we're just going to read a small part of it. Reading all of it will definitely point a lot of signs to Jesus. But we're going to start with just Exodus 24. Keep your thumb in Hebrews. We're going right back to that. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, 
All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We are signing up for this covenant. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes. Let's jump down to verse seven for time's sake. Then Moses took the book of the covenant. That's where he wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, the sacrificial animal, the covenant animal. He took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance to these words. So God cut a covenant with Israel at Sinai. And anytime that I say the former covenant, the old covenant, the first covenant, that's what we're referring to tonight. But Israel broke their side of the covenant again and again and again. And as with any other written covenant at those times, if you uphold your end of the covenant, there are blessings. And if you break your end of the covenant, there are punishments, curses, And God would use those punishments to bring them back to the covenant, to bring them back to me and his people. And again and again, they would rebel. Until finally, they plummeted themselves so deep into wickedness that he had to to separate himself. He sent them into the sin that they wanted. But before that happened, he promised that he was going to bring a new and final covenant between himself and his people. That is what we're talking about tonight. So Hebrews chapter, oh, chapter eight. We're talking about the two covenant. And the first point is that the picture is not the person. Verse one, now the point in what we are saying. So the point we're leading up to, all of Hebrews has been leading up to this. The point that we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. A high priest like we talked about last week. We have that kind of high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So let's go back to verse one. Now the point that we're saying is this, we have that kind of high priest. That is Jesus. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Levitical priesthood. And he serves in a superior tabernacle. See, then God set up a portable temple. It was a tent. And it was a tent that they would store the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that represented God's throne on earth. And in this tent, there were two sections. There was first the holy place where only the priests could go. And only once a year, the high priest alone could step into the holiest of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant was so that he could do a sacrifice for all the nation's sin. And this tent would travel around with them. And here's... Our author here is saying that Jesus doesn't serve in a tabernacle made of leather and fabrics and gold. His tabernacle itself is superior. He serves in heaven, in the very throne room of God. The throne room that the tabernacle was a picture of. 
The priesthood was a picture of. The, old, the sacrifices were a picture of. But Jesus is the picture they were looking at. God's throne room in heaven is the picture that they're looking at. The sacrifices, that was the cross. That was the picture they were looking at all this time. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So for Jesus to fulfill his office, he's going to have to offer a sacrifice. We'll talk about that next week. And it would be wholly inappropriate for Jesus to function as an earthly priest. He's of a superior priesthood, like we talked about the last two weeks. And the priestly rituals and animal sacrifices, they're empty now. They're obsolete. They're shadows. They're pictures. Jesus is the person. And he is standing before Father God, interceding for us as our high priest. Verse 5, they, talking about the Levitical priests, the priests on earth, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, that tabernacle that we talked about, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's going to be difficult to approach scripture if we don't grab onto one big truth. And that truth is that the spiritual realm is more real than the physical realm. I like how C.S. Lewis paints a picture of this. He talks about people kind of getting to the doorway of heaven in a book called The Great Divorce. And as they're, as they're approaching, they realize that they're actually very ghostly. And the grass that they're walking across pokes into their feet because the grass is more real than themselves coming from earth, coming from the physical. The spiritual realm is more lasting, more permanent, more concrete, more real than the physical. And all that's taking place in the physical with Jesus and the cross is pointing to something that is more real and more true and more lasting than what is here. And I love this word pattern because the pattern, the word pattern, the Greek word is tupos and it means type. And we just last week talked about typology, that something of the Old Testament is a picture or a symbol that is pointing forward to something in the New Testament to Jesus. So these patterns that Moses built the tabernacle out of, the patterns of the priesthood, the patterns of the sacrifices, the patterns of the incense, the patterns of all the ceremonial washings, they're all pointing to something else. They're all a type, and they're all pointing towards Jesus. So Moses needed to be careful. He needed to set it up because his pattern was reflecting something beautiful. It was reflecting the throne of God and our high priest. So if you were a reader of Hebrews back in the day and you were a Jewish Christian and you're feeling really tempted to go back to your old ways, this is a compelling argument. It's as if our author is saying, what you're going back to is hollow. It's empty. It's null and void. It's just a picture. We have the person those things seem substantial, but we have what is true in heaven where it counts. Christians in this room, there is currently a pattern functioning on earth right now. 
And it's not a pattern that points to Christ. It's a, the way the old covenant did. It's now a pattern that points to Christ in the new covenant. And that is you and I. We are Christians, little Christs. And our lives should reflect the God that we serve, the Christ that we serve. I think it would be worth thinking about tonight as we go to sleep. Does my life reflect Jesus? Is my life patterned after a loving God? Is my life patterned after a God of objective truth? Is my life patterned after his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy? Do I love people the way Jesus loved people? Do people look at me and they see a pattern of Christ? So point one is that the picture is not the person. Point two, as we move forward, is that the picture cannot save. Chapter eight, verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old covenant he mediates is better than the other covenant, since it is enacted on better promises. So Jesus' ministry is as good as the new covenant. And it's as superior to the priest's ministry as the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. For if that first covenant, the one under Moses, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So his point is that the Mosaic Covenant wasn't bad. It was ordained by God. It was good. It reflects something that's coming. It served a purpose of exposing our sin. It served a purpose of exposing our unholiness before a holy God. It patterned the sacrifices. It patterned the priesthood. But it's insufficient to actually deal with our sin, to change our hearts it's insufficient to make us right before God. Therefore, the new covenant comes with better promises. And we'll list those out at the end. Verse seven, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So it's almost like our author is expecting a critic to respond to him. And the critic might be saying something like this. Whoa, 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 whoa. We've had our Mosaic covenant for thousands of years. What gives you the right to suggest that we would need another one and that yours would be better. So our author is taking us to Jeremiah. He's taking us back to scripture to prove his point. It's Jeremiah 31. And instead of us having to turn there, he's gonna lay it out right here in chapter eight for us. The very fact that God expressed their need for a new covenant shows that the old covenant wasn't permanent. So here we go, the new covenant, the second half of, the, of tonight. Point one, we can't uphold it ourselves. Verse eight, for he, God, finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now, I love digging into what the word new means. The word new of new covenant does not mean recent. It doesn't mean there's the old covenant and this one happens to be more recent than the old one. The word new actually means new in quality 
and condition. Like when you get a new pair of shoes, give it six months and the new pair of shoes are really worn out. But this new covenant is new continuously. It doesn't wear out. We're 2,000 years from the cross of Jesus Christ and our covenant is still new with no signs of aging or fading. It's eternally stable. It's sufficient. And it is of perfect quality. We are new creations with new natures celebrating our new life in Christ. And guess what? A hundred million eons from now in heaven, we will still be celebrating that we live under the new covenant of Jesus. If there's a need for a new covenant, what was wrong with the old one? Does God find fault with his covenant? Was it not good? Was a good God not able to establish a good covenant? Did he fail? Let's look right here at verse eight, the very beginning. For he finds fault with his covenant? No, what does it say? He finds fault with them when he says this. Why? Because look at the second half of verse nine. For they did not continue in my covenant. There's a bug in the system and it wasn't the covenant. It was sinful people. It was them. God exposes the real problem to Jeremiah. It was us. It was us and our sin. God says he even treated them with the same care and gentleness and love that a father has when he leads his child. And he led them out of Egypt. And what did they do? They responded with rebellion and selfishness and rejection. And they broke the covenant. We, as sinful man, can't uphold our end of the covenant. We will be over here, and we will drop it every time. Every time. Every New Year's resolution, I'm going to be better. Every self-help book, every philosophical TikTok doesn't deal with our human hearts. We drop it every time. So our second point about the new covenant is beautiful. We can't do it. God will uphold it. Look at verse eight. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will. Jump down to verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Six times God says he is gonna be the one doing this. Moses' law was external. It was written on stone by the very finger of God, but God is taking his covenant to a new place. He's now writing it in our hearts and writing it on our minds. The place that God's gonna write it this time will have a transformational effect. He'll write it on our minds and he'll transform our minds, Romans 12. He'll write it on our hearts and it'll transform our hearts, Ezekiel 36. It's not just going to be something external. It's actually going to have an internal effect on us. And what are we being transformed into? 
more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, which opens the door for God to be with us and for us to be with him. This new covenant is not conditional. This new covenant is unconditional. It is unilateral. It is God himself with his own omnipotent strength upholding his covenant. And it will last as long as God lives. So it is eternal and it is unbreakable. God initiated it. God ratified it with his own blood through Jesus and God will sustain it for eternity. What God does is what we can't do. And what God gives is what we don't deserve. It is grace through and through. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin that requires it for us. And the only way that we can respond is to trust that he'll be faithful. That's it. That is salvation, is to trust that Jesus is faithful, that his high priesthood is faithful, that our God loves us and is faithful. That's what we bring to salvation. And that's what scripture calls faith. And the end goal, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Mosaic covenant sharply warned to stay at a distance. The covenant under Christ says, come and be near. Draw near to him. And it was inaugurated through the death of Jesus. And to make sure that we didn't miss it, Jesus gives us another picture. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper or maybe the Eucharist, depending on where you're from. But it's when Jesus holds up the bread and he holds up the wine. And what does he say? You can read it in Mark 14. As they're eating, he takes the cup. And when he'd given it thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? Because Jesus is going to die. And the wine symbolizes the blood that he's going to shed hours from this meal. It's poured out for many. It reflects Moses taking the blood of the sacrifice and slinging it on the people to ratify the covenant. Jesus' blood will cover us just like the Passover lamb that night of the Passover in Egypt. We're covered by his blood. We're under his covenant. And it's not a covenant that we have to keep up with our own strength or our own power. We can't just grit our teeth and keep it up. God does it. God established a covenant through Jesus. And point three, this covenant, unlike the pictures, this covenant through the real person saves. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This new covenant represents present implications and future ones. This covenant isn't entirely finished. It will be when God unites all of his church, all together, Jews and Gentiles and every language, and he unites us together in heaven. And all of us know God with perfect knowledge, and all of us are united together perfectly. Verse 12, for, all this leads up to this, for I will be merciful towards 
their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. All of the pictures and symbols of the Mosaic Covenant are all pointing to this final reality that God will ultimately and finally deal with sin. When he says remember no more, it doesn't mean that God has Alzheimer's. It, rem- it means that he doesn't hold our sin against us anymore. He's talking about justification. We were in sin, worthy of death before God, and now God is no longer holding it to our account. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. It's a choice not to hold something against someone. We treat that person as if they haven't done it at all. And God's forgiveness of us should be a model. And because of his new heart in us, it should empower us that we can forgive other people. Who are you struggling to forgive? Because if you love Jesus, not only do you have him as your example, but you also have his Holy Spirit inside, giving us the strength and ability to make a heart choice, to not hold them accountable for their sin anymore. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. The law and the sacrifices couldn't purify us. It can only shock us into realizing that we're full of sin. But this new covenant comes with better promises. How could God not count our sin against us anymore? I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. He punished Jesus as if Jesus had our lust, as if Jesus had our pride, our greed, our anger and hate and our foul mouths. He looked at Jesus and punished him as if he had our sin and accounted Jesus as us so that we could be rewarded as if we had Jesus's obedience, as if we had his holiness his righteousness. He earned our salvation. But there's more to this covenant. There's actually two sides. Because a judge, a judge who lets a dangerous, guilty man go, we do not consider a just judge. Especially if you're a parent in the courtroom and this man's on trial for molesting your child, you don't care if someone else is paying this man's sentence. If he's being released, that judge is unjust. So how? How can we talk about God as a just judge if Jesus pays our punishment and we're set free? Knowing we are still the same sinner we were before. And this is where the new covenant becomes even more beautiful. Let's take a look at the new covenant. We've been looking at it in Jeremiah. Let's take a look at it in Ezekiel. If you've got quick fingers to turn to Ezekiel, I'd like to look at this together. Israel had just received God's wrath. They were taken away as slaves into a foreign country and things seemed hopeless. But God reminded them of what he spoke to Jeremiah. 
and he adds to it. Chapter 36 of Ezekiel, we're going to start in verse 25. I, this is God speaking. Look at how many I wills. This is all about God's strength and what he's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to take the heart of a guilty, vile, angry, sinful person, and I'm going to replace it with a beating heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I, through the Holy Spirit, am going to be in you, motivating you, guiding you, compelling you towards God's holiness. So how can God justly release us back from our punishment is because God has made us an entirely new creation. The one walking out of the courtroom is not the same one who deserved to be there. Which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians can say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come because they have a new heart. Because God's spirit of holiness is dwelling in them. We are forgiven, we're freed, and we're new. Hebrews 13, or chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. This phrase, growing old, means that he's comparing the old covenant to an old elderly person who's about to die. It's vanishing. The old covenant has passed away. Think about, think about a, a grain of wheat. That grain of wheat was grown and protected by a stalk and by the husk surrounding it. But someday when that grain of wheat is harvested, that stalk and that husk are just chaff. They have no purpose anymore. They were good. But now it's finished. They have the pictures, but we have the person. The old has passed away. The new has come. This author is speaking to Jewish Christians tempted to return to Judaism. And he's saying, there is no hope. There is no purpose. And there is no reason to go back. Elevate, we are so tempted to return back to our sin. We're so tempted to return back to our old friends, to our old lifestyles, to our old websites. We're so tempted constantly. But I'm telling you, Elevate, there's nothing to go back to. It's empty, it's hollow, it's void. There's no salvation. There's no fulfillment. There's nothing lasting in any of those things. Elevate, grab a hold of Jesus. Grab a hold of what is new and everlasting loving and beautiful, the one who can uphold a covenant that we can't. The new covenant is better than the former 
because it gives better promises. And here's a quick list. There are more. This is what I thought of in a few minutes. And this is what we find between Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hebrews chapter 8. The new covenant finally purifies us from sin and gives us forgiveness. The new covenant justifies us with God. It transforms the human heart and mind to be different. It lasts forever. It gives us eternal life. It fills us with the Holy Spirit. It empowers us to walk in obedience and holiness. It brings us near to our loving God, and we become his, and he becomes ours. And the new covenant promises a time of unhindered relationship with him and perfect unity with one another. My picture shrine of Jackie has since been taken down and lost to time. I have no idea where it is. It doesn't matter. I don't have to look for it. I don't need to look at pictures. I don't have to look forward to being with her again because we cut a covenant. We cut a covenant that's going to last the rest of our lives. I'm with her and she's with me. I'm hers and she's mine. There's nothing in our lives that are worth pursuing except Jesus himself. And his covenant is so much more critical, important, and beautiful than just a marriage covenant. It's even longer lasting. It's a covenant that saves us from our sin and that transforms our heart. Jesus has come. And a search for God doesn't need to begin with pictures anymore. It can begin with a search of him himself. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. Quick recap. The old covenant under Moses was a picture of how God would save, but it couldn't. It was a conditional covenant which Israel broke again and again. God promised another superior one with better promises. This one was unconditional, upheld by God's faithfulness. It was initiated by God, ratified by Christ, and sustained by his power. And by it, we are forgiven, freed, and made new creations. I've got two challenges for you tonight. First, forgive someone tonight. And second, what is that sin you can't shake? Maybe you've been trying to shake it off and defeat it with your own power. Lean into the Lord, surrender it to him. Begin to feed your spirit with his Holy Spirit and with his word and starve it to death, not by your strength, but by a pursuit of Jesus. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are loving. And there's nothing we can do to uphold the covenant you have cut with us. All we can do is trust that you will be faithful to make you our Lord and to be obedient to you. And none of those things come apart from you are changing our heart and giving us the power to do it. We love you, Lord. Bless e-groups tonight. Let them be full of rich conversation. Let them take this deeper than even what we did here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.